probably our newest member of staff in the department. Um, Neil is um, associate professor in learning and, uh, and new technologies, and uh, he only joined the department in November, just uh, a few months ago. And um, sincerely, I believe he's already made an impact on the department. Um, and one indication of how he hit the ground running was that within two days of Niall being here, he was, uh, I was signing off a risk assessment form for him to travel to Africa to carry out his research. Um, and um, uh, he's a very, very busy man. Um, Neil's interests are in understanding how educational interventions can help address inequality, especially people who are marginalised, and clearly technology is the focus of those interventions. Um, and specifically, uh, thinking about health uh, and education in health. Um, so um, uh, I'm delighted that uh, he's going to speak tonight, and I'm going to pass straight over to him without embarrassing him any further, <laughs> and he's going to talk about mobile learning and global health training. What about social justice? It depends where you put the stress. What yeah. about social justice? <laughs> what about? <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully the latter, but let's see. Thank you very much. Um, thanks everyone for, for coming um, on what is a cold and rainy evening, so I very much appreciate it. Um, see, I'm going to spend about uh, 45 minutes or so and then leaving time for discussion, um, but feel free if you have any questions you want to stop me halfway or at any point uh, during the lecture, please, please do so. Um, so I had a little uh, slide about myself, but Ernesto's <laughs> kindly covered, covered most of it. Um, so I'd say my main research interest is a sort of interdisciplinary socio-technical research. So I have a background from a long time ago in, uh, in computer science. So I'm interested in how the development of new technologies relates to, um, well, educational practice. But in my case, how that's instantiated in healthcare training, both here in, uh, in the UK, but primarily in um, East Africa and in Kenya in particular. So that's the work I'm going to focus on in this talk. So I'll start off with a, a question that um, I used in one of the lectures. I see some of the uh, master's students are, are here today, so thanks for coming. So they don't have to answer this question. <laughs> so um, this is just to keep this in, in, in mind, and we'll come back to it a little bit later. Um, so if you think about technology and think about the use of technology in um, the majority <coughs> world or the developing world, as some people call it. Um, I pose this question. So in the context of working with poor communities in Kenya, would you choose to use a low-end phone that almost everyone has access to, or a $50 smartphone that only a minority do? So just keep that in mind at the back of your head as we, as we go, go through. Um, that's certainly the first part of this, of this talk. So one of the areas I work, uh, work on is um, ICT for, for development. Um, and if I was to just put that out there as the technology and development or projects in technology and development, um, do any particular projects or any particular <coughs> excuse me, interventions come to mind? The one laptop per child. That wasn't a plant. Um, <laughs> that is, <laughs> but that's usually what people say. <laughs> but 
which, uh, so do all the people know about the OLPC or the One Laptop Per Child program? So this was, a, oh, it must be nearly eight, ten years ago now that it first started. So it was designed in a very participatory way to, before netbooks to develop um, technologies for the majority world, and here's one of the early models here. Um, so it's quite robust, it's quite rugged, it's dustproof, it had a very nice monitor that uh, changed colour to black and white under direct sunlight. These funny kind of ears it has here are so it can do mesh networking, i.e. your internet connection can be, come on in, do grab a seat anywhere. Um, your internet connection can be peer-to-peer, -peer, so not everyone has to be directly um, connected. And a lot of the software that was on it, from a pedagogical design point of view, um, was pretty good. There's a lot of sort of socio-constructionist um, learning principles underpinning it. Um, the problem, I think, was, was in terms of, of implementation. Um, so if you remember, it took a kind of a, a hardcore, if you like, uh, constructionist line, which kind of, I would guess it's fair to say, um, marginalized teachers or ministries of, of education. Um, so literally they had a top-down approach. I don't think this actually happened, but this was a, an idea to drop them from um, helicopters into remote villages. So it made Time magazine, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, so we tend, I think anyone working in education, not to think in, in that way. So often, you know, ICT <coughs> for development has been accused of being technocentric. Um, so you can probably see why when the most popular projects tend to be, or the most well-known, I should say, tend to take that approach. Um, so a lot of my work over the years has been not quite top-down, but bottom-up. So this is some work with um, Nick Short from the Royal Veterinary College. And just to note here, early work, the, the mobile phone, so the guy has strung around his neck there. Um, so that was some work in training um, veterinary healthcare workers. Um, this is uh, Anne Anganitsu sitting there in the front row, who's the postdoc on the, the project and some of the contexts in which we find ourselves in uh, Kenya. This is in uh, the Kibera informal settlement. So Anne, I think, is on her way to visit one of the, the households there. Um, this previous work we've done on not just in development but raising awareness about development issues. So this is around data collection again for veterinary students working with the Department of Agriculture in Zanzibar. So they're using um, both EpiCollect and Google ODK, if you know that work, from a, from a few years back. But again, sort of really in situ, in context. Um, so that was just a an initial opening to some of the um, areas in which we work. And this, I think, puts a broader, broader context on particularly the situation in sub-Saharan Africa, and this is from a, a World Bank um, report. Uh, Despite its falling poverty rates, sub-Saharan Africa is the only region in the world for which the number of poor individuals has risen steadily and dramatically between 81 and 2010. There are more than twice as many extremely poor people living in sub-Saharan Africa today, 414 million, uh, than there were three decades ago. As a result, while the extreme poor in sub-Saharan Africa represent only 11% of the world's total in 1981, they now account for more than a third of the world's extreme poor. So 
we often find ourselves working in contexts, working with these uh, communities or people living in these kinds of, <coughs> excuse me, contexts. Um, and we do that with partners on the ground. Um, in the Kenyan case, it's with um, AMREF Health Africa, which is an African-one um, NGO that works, I think, in 14 countries across Sub-Saharan Africa, but primarily in, uh, in East Africa. So they do a lot of work in, uh, in Kibera. So the access we have to communities there, both in Kibera, which is the urban settlement, and in Makrene, which is the rural settlement, is due to, is due to them. So they characterize Kibera as follows. The community in Kibera is characterized by high levels of poverty, insecurity, and inadequate access to ba basic social services. There is little or no access to water, electricity, basic services, and adequate sanitation. Uh, most structures are let on a room-by-room -room basis, with many families, on average six people, living in just one room. These factors have serious health repercussions, also educational repercussions, um, demonstrated by the child mortality rate. For every thousand children born in Nairobi's informal settlements, 151 will die before the age of five. Uh, the average for Nairobi as a whole is 62. And this is just the view from the, the health center in uh, Kibera. So with, in that context, and that was just to give you some of the, the background, we have um, an ESRC DFID funded project, project called uh, MCHW. Um, between ourselves and the London Knowledge Lab, which is at the UCL Institute of Education, and AMREF, whom I've already mentioned. So what are we doing? So we're working with community health workers, or as they're called in Kenya, community health volunteers, some of whom are, are here on an exchange visit between Kibera and uh, McQuenney. So these are volunteers, they're, they're not paid, and they do sort of outreach um, in communities, um, focusing normally on uh, maternal and child health, water and sanitation, these kinds of basic uh, health issues. Um, I don't know if you can see this very well, but partially the reason I used it is because the photo was taken <coughs> in, a, in a home where the only um, light was from a, a candle here. So this is a community health worker um, assessing stages of childhood development in a child under five using a, a mobile phone. So this is part of our, the work on our project. And there are some more health workers doing the same thing. One here, one here again in a, in a household. I don't think he's too pleased to be photographed, but anyway. Um, just again, to give you a sense of the context in which we're, we're working. Um, so Kibera I've, I've mentioned, and the other area is um, McQuenne, which is a, a rural settlement. Um, and one of the big issues they have is long issue, or sorry, <coughs> long spells of of drought. It's about two hours odd away from, from Nairobi. Um, so what we've done is we've used um, smartphones and we focused on developmental milestones or helping uh, these community health workers assess sta stages of childhood development using this mobile uh, application. So the mobile application does have the, what's called the MDAT protocol which is, uh, I'll come to that in a second. Um, but more importantly, from an educational point of view, it's looking at um, how do you design a practice-based in intervention that supports better linking between what's going on in the communities and what's going on in the formal healthcare 
system. So their supervisors, who supervise usually 50 community health workers, are normally based in the formal healthcare system, and they've got these volunteers working in the, in the community. And a lot of the health research shows that if community health volunteers get good supervision, and what I mean by good supervision is I mean good and ongoing supervision, they tend to do a pretty good job. Of course, given resource constraints, um, the supervision they get uh, isn't often in optimal, people are busy, etc. So the part of the rationale for the project was looking at the role of mobile technology to support better supervisory practice. And that's what we're doing here. So what we've done is we focused on one area, which is stages of childhood development, and we're looking at how the technology changes the nature of the supervisory and training role. Um, is that okay? Yeah, any questions so far? Yeah, okay. So I'll come back to a bit of detail about this application in a, in a moment. So in terms, very briefly, of the kind of, um, <coughs> excuse me, pedagogical approach, I guess you'd say, we're, we're taking. So um, in mHealth, which you could also position this, this work, um, there's been a lot of work done on uh, training focused on information dissemination models. So essentially, you see a lot of work on SMS-based tools um, to support community health workers like these or families, um, often with health messaging, that kind of thing, focused on things like behavior change. So they're seen very much as consumers of information rather than producers of their own knowledge. So part of the question of this project is, if you move from that model, which we all think, I think you'd agree, we think we should, um, to models focus on more sort of uh, social participation um, and participation both in the design and development of the application, but also in terms of participation in terms of um, the approach to learning through this practice-based, i.e. what data can you collect with the phones on what health workers are doing that helps supervision and helps the feedback loop, if you like, between uh, teacher and student or supervisor and trainee. Um, and because of that, you're shifting towards um, quite simple uses of, of technology, so receiving SMSs, to something that's a little bit more complex. So there's been a lot of work done, um, particularly by the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in, in India, and in what they call task shifting. So what tasks can you shift from um, doctors, nurses, etc., to community health workers? and through technology, well in our case through technology, um, help them to engage in more complex health practices, in our case assessing stages of childhood development that they wouldn't otherwise be doing. So it's this relationship between uh, technology and the nature of practice and how it's appropriate and embedded in that, um, and the data that's collected that can then be analysed to support better supervisory practice. So as part of this task shifting model, we followed a an MDAP protocol, which is the Malawi Development Assessment Tool, which was uh, published in Pause Medicine, I think about, yeah, five years ago, 2010. Um, so we worked with uh, Melissa Gladstone here, um, and she gave us access to some of the resources they had that helped us design a version that was suitable for the mobile phone and suitable for, the, for our community health workers. Um, and this is what it looks like. I'm not going to go into huge amounts of detail here, but um, the app runs on a, on a smartphone. It's a web-based app. So this is the one the um, community health workers have. So they can 
create their child records, they can um, run through those, obviously. They can get feedback from their supervisor, they can keep notes, they can see what their supervisor has seen. Um, and on the supervisor side, they have a structured way in which to feedback to the uh, community health worker. They've got a history of the cohort, who's doing what, where and when. Um, because the web apps, they don't have to run on a, on a smartphone. They could be at their computer at work, they could be using a tablet. It just runs across um, all devices. Um, because it's HTML5, it runs offline. Um, you don't need constant internet connectivity. You only need connectivity when you're sending or sharing data, because there is um, support built in for, for peer learning as well, although use of that has been minimal through the app. That's more happened face-to-face. Uh, -face. They're also looking at the nature of mediated interaction through the tool, but also what happens in uh, the social context face-to-face -face as well. Um, so what's, uh, what are some of the interim results? I'll just grab a, a sip of water. Are there any questions so far? That's clear. Yeah. Oh, sorry. So um, we started off, which I'll come to in a second, because it was a participatory-based approach, working with um, about 25 uh, community health uh, volunteers and their supervisors who were working on the ground. And then within each health center, about two to four people, uh, plus the people at MRF. So that was, I mean, HQ. So that was about 30-odd people. And in September, we scaled up to uh, 100. So, um, yeah, so they're currently following a peer-to-peer -peer training model. Um, but because of the budget of the project, it's not going to go much bigger than that at the moment. But yeah, so they're relatively small numbers. Are there any other questions? Okay. So from the, um, so we're, we're undertaking a uh, theory-driven evaluation, of which here are some of the interim uh, findings. So as you'd expect, we've had a change in practice training and supervision quality um, of community health workers in, in both settings. So for, um, for example, if community health workers don't hear back from their, their supervisors or don't get some feedback, um, the, their supervisors will soon hear about it. Um, we've noticed differences in supervision between the supervisors themselves in terms of the nature of their feedback, but also the kinds of feedback they give to community health volunteers, even if they're doing very different things. So from looking at the data, uh, you can use that in two ways. You could use it in a kind of a managerial, kind of top-down sense. Um, or you could say, actually, there needs to be increased training in to provide more structured feedback uh, to your cohort of 50 uh, community health volunteers. Um, monitoring and supervision of, of community health workers has been improved. That's um, shorthand for the sort of the data-driven approach. So we've got data on what um, community health workers are doing and also what their supervisors, how they're um, monitoring them. So what's been interesting is to see how supervisors have looked at or addressed, not just through the app, but also in face-to-face -face meetings, 
um, the feedback that they're supposed to be giving to different community health workers depending on what they're, what they're doing. Um, some of whom had never, had never got that before. Um, because childhood development, or stages of childhood development, wasn't a key priority before, um, we've seen increased uh, awareness at household level of the importance of just thinking about your child's uh, developmental needs. And this point, I think, is, is also very interesting. Um, one of the initial problems <coughs> or the decisions around why to choose um, referral was that uh, a lot of the health centres were finding that there was over-referral. So because community health workers, quite rightly, I think, were playing you know, uh, better safe than sorry, they were over-referring. But now, that because um, they've undertaken this training, we're beginning to see a, a more um, informed sense of referral, i.e. kids been referred when they should be referred. Um, so this is coming towards the, the wider social justice point that I'll come on to um, in a second. And because of stigma and a number of other uh, issues, and because childhood development wasn't um, a key priority in, in training, what happened is a lot of uh, children with disabilities, particularly cerebral palsy, were discovered in the communities. Um, so there was trust developed between community health workers and um, the families where usually the mom will come and say, um, actually my child has been suffering with a disability. I kind of managed to get him to hospital once, maybe two years ago. Um, but he's not getting any day-to-day -day care. Uh, he's hidden because of stigma in the community. Can you help me? And I'll come back to that point in a, uh, towards the end of the, of the talk. So that was kind of unexpected. I'm not a health practitioner. I'm not from a health background. So I wasn't uh, expecting that. So we've now, I think it's around 30 families have come forward when only for an area covered by, I think, four community health workers. Is that right, Dan? Yeah, about four community health workers. Um, so which is quite interesting because when you walk around, you don't see any of these disabled kids, pretty much. Um, one of the other areas we've been following up on <coughs> is getting supervisors to develop their own applications. So in areas of uh, thinking about capacity building, not just in the design of them, but also in the development of these tools. So we've developed a toolkit where we're currently working with, this is the ongoing part of the project we're um, working on at the moment, um, where supervisors can work with the toolkit we've developed without the need to code to develop their own applications because the pedagogical underpinning is the same. So it's something where they can create data, essentially have a conversation around it with their supervisor, um, share it and reflect on it. Um, and it could also be extended to, to giving um, feedback or visualizing feedback to the supervisor depending on the data that's been collected. But I think um, the project will end before we get to that stage. Uh, so that's currently training up uh, supervisors on that, and that will lead to, um, it'll be interesting to see actually if that leads to um, increased use by the NGO in terms of not needing to have the ability to code in order to develop your own applications. If you've done something in childhood development, you might want to do something in maternal and child health or water and sanitation. Okay. So that's kind of a, a brief overview of where we've come from and where we are um, with the project. And I wanted to step back and take, um, or talk a little bit about why the project developed 
in the way it did. Um, taking this approach to social justice, and there's a number of, of ways you can look at this, but what I'm going to take just one um, aspect, which is the preferential option for the poor um, advocated or talked about by Paul Farmer, which is based on ideas from um, liberation uh, theology, particularly coming out of South America in the 70s, 70s into the 80s. So in taking uh, a preferential option for the poor, um, as Ernesto said, I have an interest in addressing inequality, so you're directly, directly doing that. Um, and because I'm interested in the use of, of technology, one of the areas of inequality we're interested in, although it's not the only one, but it's the one that's most relevant for this talk, is informational inequality. So um, Van Dyck has done a lot of work on concepts of access and what access means. And one of the ways of thinking about it is um, access could be defined as access to hardware or access to information, um, but can also be defined as <coughs> excuse me, um, access to particular kinds of tools that enable you to engage with knowledge in particular kinds of ways. So for example, to just instantiate it in, in, in the case of mHealth, for example, um, if, you're, if you have a low-end phone, you've got uh, SMS messages, you're used to engaging in technology in that way. Um, your use or your use of that technology is relatively simple use. You're sending simple text messages, basically. Um, whereas, for example, if you're doing something with, I don't know, modeling with an Excel spreadsheet, that's a, a very different use of technology. So the question here is, um, if you scale up an intervention that's SMS-based um, versus scaling up one that's based on something like this that is about actually practice-based use, unintentionally, may you be embedding structural inequalities within a particular intervention because one community is getting a particular tool, let's say this SMS-based thing, that's really quite simplistic, where other people have access to tools that are far more uh, complex, and like we do, that enable you to do far more interesting things. Okay, so um, I would contend that M Health is actually, or some projects in M Health, are actually exacerbating the problem of structural inequality. Inadvertently, I might add, I would think, um, not intentionally. But it's interesting to think about that and conceptualize that, but then think about how technology or how the design of your intervention can overcome those. Um, and that's one way of thinking of taking a preferential option for the poor. So the emphasis here is on um, preferential. So, <coughs> excuse me, so Farmer works in, in health. So he says that uh, such approach, sorry, such an approach, i.e. a preferential option for the poor, is a challenge and an insight. It challenges doctors and other health providers to make an option, a choice for the poor to work on their behalf. <coughs> This insight is, in a sense, an epidemiological one. Most often, diseases themselves make a preferential option for the poor. Every survey across boundaries of space and time shows that the poor are sicker than the non-poor. So you might ask, why is this? And in what ways um, can taking this preferential option begin to address some of these issues? Okay. And then this is where it gets um, somewhat political, I guess. Um, 
so we would frame it in this way. Instead of just describing and managing social inequality, although that has obvious merit, um, what happens when you take a social justice approach that transforms researchers into advocates for social change by attempting to tackle, I guess, the social and political structures that produce and perpetuate inequality. So if you think about that in, in M health terms, you might ask, would, for example, these SMS-based tools um, actually, because of how they're structured and because of how people are positioned, actually perpetuate a form of, of inequality? Um, I'm not saying that's a simple question to answer, but I'm saying it's a good one at least to ask. Um, particularly when you're designing these kinds of, of interventions. Okay. Um, so pragmatically then, how do you go about addressing this? <laughs> Rather, I guess, some might argue, idealistic question. Um, one, I would argue, do stuff in a participatory manner. So the people you're working with, you're doing research with them rather than on them as some people say. Um, so you're following in the rich tradition of participatory action research, um, which goes back at least to the, to the 70s. Um, you think about the nature of what is an appropriate technology, which is part of the reason why I posed the question at the beginning of this talk. Um, and thirdly, you think about uh, pragmatic solidarity and what that means is what it is to work with these communities. And what does that mean? outside of perhaps just the nature of your intervention. So, is that okay so far? Yeah? Okay. Do shoot up your hand if you've got any questions. Um, so these are all quite large areas, so I'm just going to summarize uh, briefly. So in terms of participatory action research, in our case it meant going in saying, <laughs> I guess it's some some level, um, we don't have a clue what you're doing day to day. But all we know is we're interested in the development of a mobile learning intervention that will support you in building better links between, <coughs> excuse me, supervisors and community health workers. And they went okay. So we needed to understand what people do currently, i.e. this paper-based system that they have, um, what they do day to day, so we had lots of workshops with people, shadowing, all the kind of, I guess, pseudo-ethnographic pseudo uh, uh, approaches you'd, you'd expect. Um, we did a lot of work on, on photo elicitation to get very rich descriptions about um, community health workers' day-to-day -day practice. Um, this image is just to show that like, some community health workers do very different things, so they're not always just in the community. Some of them actually do work in the health centres um, as well. And out of this, interviews, etc., um, as well, we iteratively developed um, the mobile phone application. So that's just uh, one of the designs we went to the, uh, the community health workers with. And then you iterate. So these arrows, <laughs> sorry, uh, my um, computer crashed today, or yesterday, I should say. And then my iPad also died. So I had to quickly do all the slides again today. So my graphics are a bit off. <laughs> so um, so this, is, this is an iterative, iterative process. So what you do is you come up with a ver version of the tool, you use it in practice, and you iterate again. And this is what this is attempting, this effort of the visualization is trying to get across. But um, in terms of time, like understanding what was currently going on, before we even went near, near any technology or any technology development, I think we were at least about uh, six or seven months into the project. 
So in that way, you're kind of giving over some control. We didn't go in and say, we're interested in stages of childhood development. That actually came out through some of these workshops. So we got people to rank what they do every day, where the gaps in their knowledge is, what do they think was important in their community, that kind of thing. And then we went off and found the necessary expertise in order, order to help us design the intervention. Is that okay? So that's kind of the, the participatory approach. Um, so if we come back to the question now, um, has anyone got any... Uh, I haven't biased you at all, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe if people are honest, what do they think at the beginning of the, <laughs> of the talk and what do they think now? Maybe that's a fairer way of phrasing it. Mm-hmm. Why not? Because it depends on the context. So in, in the case you described, I can see how that technology is allowing high sophisticated judgments to be made that may not be made otherwise. Mm -hmm. And recording passed on and what have you. But if you actually wanted something uh, uh, an intervention that was going to give five hundred people, five thousand people a piece of technology, then that might be you know, that might be a barrier. But if you're using expensive equipment might yeah. Yeah. It would depend on the intention you're Yeah. So one of the I mean one of the ways of, of thinking about that is um, I guess to me it's the nature of cost effectiveness and how you model that and the balance between if you prioritize that or if you prioritize what people actually can do or what you think they should be able to do. Um, and I think a lot of work went into that in the um, in the 80s or maybe 90s, I can't remember, around antiretroviral drugs, for example. So you could make the argument to say, well, in 91 or whatever, they were too expensive. Our cost is a cost, I don't know how many thousands per, per treatment. Um, but then you had a massive campaign to say, actually, people need these in generics, etc. Um, and that's interesting, because also if you did the cost model at the beginning of that, early 90s, um, it probably would have been dated within four or five years. So it's interesting to me that technology is the same thing. So if I asked this question even, I don't know, three years before the project started, that wouldn't be a $50 smartphone, that would be a $500 smartphone. So you're right, yeah, the context and the dynamics do change. Um, but I think sometimes the cost-effectiveness question can lead particularly some ministries to step back and go, oh, it's too expensive. Um, and they prioritize that over actually the capabilities of what or how the technology can support community health workers in our case, could be teachers in other cases, um, to really do a, I guess, more professional job. Yeah. Are you, are you kind of talking less about um, like the decreasing cost of technology and more about something else, which is about giving people um, saying that it's, uh, it's kind of socially unfair for us to all be benefiting so much from mm. much more powerful technology and you want to change the balance. Yep. It's not really saying, oh, we're going to do research, it's just looking ahead to what's going to be cheap and sure. something that seems expensive mm. now, but mm. you know, when the research is rolled out, it'll be cheap. That's kind of a separate issue, I think, from kind of social justice. 
to me they're yeah so I was positioning this as a, as a, as a social justice one but I think um, you're right I think they're both right in the sense as um, to me they're, they're, they're interrelated um, but I think it's much harder to make a pure social justice um, claim or motivation for the work uh, and get it funded and get people to buy in than it is to make a future research one. What will things be like in, in, in three years? But I think people tend to focus on what they look like now rather than that three years down the line and that's for me is where they're, they're related. But this one here is focused on the, the latter point. Sure. So I'm Absolutely. curious as, you know, what is the preferential option? It's not static at all. It's, it's constantly mm. moving, and I think the ability for those researchers like yourselves to constantly respond to that leads me to the second mm. sort of aspect that I was thinking of, of participation. Yeah. And, you know, how many Kenyans, you know, have access to a phone, such as a smartphone? Not many. It's mm. growing. Mm. Um, and if, if you were to ask, well, what kind of technology would you like to use if we had no funding? The majority would say, well, I already have an SMS phone. Can I at least do this on my SMS phone yep. first? So I think you know, the preferential option could also be the other way with this participatory action approach of actually, I want to use what I have right now. I have to walk two hours to get it charged. It's going to last 10 days versus a smartphone. I have to also get the power, and I, I agree the social justice aspect of that's not fair. They should have access to what mm. the researchers come in and have. Mm. But I think, you know, working in Kenya myself, mm. as we as we know, um, when we were designing our project for a thousand schools, mm. the head teacher said, "I want both. I want both SMS and I want that." So yeah. maybe it's a combination between. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So anything you can do with the SMS, you can do with this tool, for yeah. example. Um, so you can make all sorts of discussions about, uh, what is it, uh, low entry, high ceiling, or um, those kinds of things. But I think I don't want to just focus it on the technology discussion, because I think you're right about focusing on the participation. So this is just one way to frame it. And all three aspects, I think, are equally important. But I think the participation is also about people's voice and really thinking about their needs, rather than a lot of, I think, the SMS-based ones, which is, um, this is what's good for you. I, you know, I'm summarizing, but essentially that. Um, and for me, it's always interesting to think here, if you did that in a UK or a European context or US context, um, part of your education, not learning now, but education, is going to be through SMS-based phones because the lowest common denominator is, and um, this is a wider argument, but uh, either because you're not in school or because teaching is, uh, there's weak educational systems, which is all true. But I think we've seen a lot of the work in, certainly in, in, in mobile learning, I don't know whether you'd agree you can critique this, is setting up a parallel structure. So they use the weakness of the healthcare system as a rationale for why they might want to do this work, rather than thinking about um, how do we work together. So, um, so this idea of, of participation in people at every level, 
It's just because here, a lot of the communities, well, all of them, are highly marginalized. So I think we have to be very careful about just increasing their marginalization, the ways in which that might happen. Um, and OK, there are complexities between those. Um, and for me, the, the technology is just one lens, one way of thinking about that. Um, I don't want to frame it as I'm just talking about technology and social justice. I'm sorry if I came across that way. Is that OK? Any other question? Okay. That's participation. Um, so here is, I mean, this is just a, a short, uh, well, you know, we have to blog and stuff with the research project. So uh, this is just part of a, the short expert from the, from the blog we wrote on the, on, um, the website, which was fo focusing on the nature of what people are able to do with these kinds of tools. So go back, it goes back to the Van Dyke inequalities point I, I made earlier. Um, and some of the stuff we're doing is just simply not possible with low-end phones. Um, so I think that promotes a, <coughs> a social justice point of view to, to doing this. Because I think a lot of the work in, in um, uh, mobile health in, 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 in particular um, is driven by a more uh, economic rationale. Okay, so the third one is in point is pragmatic solidarity. So you can think about that in a number of ways. Um, so as I mentioned at the, at the um, beginning, um, because community health workers in the community is using these um, applications, a lot of women who have children with disabilities started to come forward. So um, but prag pragmatic solidarity, one interpretation of it is, is how do you work with these communities? So the, the project is now no longer just about, not that it ever was, but let's paint it in this way, no longer just about the technology or just about the intervention. It's about the social context in which people find themselves and how can you work towards um, alleviating some of those uh, conditions, I guess is a fair way to describe it. Um, so here you can see some of these. So this is a a group that's come together of, of um, mothers. They've called themselves First Love Mothers in Kibera. Um, and they all have children with, uh, or they, they said to us, children with cerebral palsy, um, some of whom um, have never been uh, treated, or if they have, um, it hasn't been, let's say, the most appropriate uh, treatment, stories of overdoses and things like this. Um, so the question in terms of the project, if you're going to say you're developing this referral app, and if you're going to have community health workers going into these communities, and you're able to say, yes, we can identify uh, these children, what happens then? Um, and this is a serious problem, and here's where we get our little research project <laughs> linking to the bigger and social structures uh, and inequalities that, are, that these women find themselves facing every day. So that meant that we had to go then, and with, with AMREF, uh, begin to link people up because by the time this happened, the project's halfway through, we possibly got a, a year, a year and a half left. So understanding um, the limits of what we can do as a, as a research project um, in terms of sustainability, for example, and ongoing um, interaction, is what we can do to understand what the ministry's doing, for example. So the ministry have really lovely documentation, um, how to take care of your child at home, etc. Um, none of which makes it down to this level. Uh, so the awareness of, 
of these, this group of uh, mothers of what's available to them uh, is practically zero. Uh, before the project, some of them um, didn't even know what a community health worker was. So there's, there's things you can do and links you can put in place um, to build that. So we've been, been working on that, particularly with uh, Leonard Cheshire Disability, who, funnily enough, through their London office and then back down to Nairobi to get to link people up uh, on the ground um, to begin to get, for example, uh, physiotherapy to these um, women. And AMREP have been very good, good with that. So um, it becomes um, a truly, I guess, socio-technical uh, intervention. Um, so I'm almost at the end. I just want to thank everyone on the, on the team, including Anne, who's, who's here, who can also take some of your, your questions. Um, and yes, yeah, so with myself, Anne, um, Martin, who's been leading from the, on the evaluation side, um, Ola, who's our programmer, um, and Jade, who's looking at the nature of participation, a uh, PhD student, Isabella, former, former postdoc, um, and then some researchers in, uh, in Kenya, and the now 100 or so um, choose community health extension workers or supervisors, and the volunteers themselves. So I'll just end by thanking you for your time. Thank you very much.